Welcome to Urban Forum Northwest with your host, Eddie Rye. Uh, we have a number of people we we'll are talking with today, but our first guest is a distinguished himself, not only as a merit scholar at Lakeside, but also a super scholar at Stanford, undergrad and graduate school. And he is the son of the proud parents of Mickey and Bob Flowers and her twin sister, Vicki uh, Boogie Fabre. So Chris, welcome to Urban Forum Northwest. And uh, I'm so proud to see that you're gonna be honored by the Lymphoma uh, Society Foundation uh, in New York. It's gonna be a virtual thing. But first of all, just uh, tell us a little bit about what you're doing before we go into your childhood and background. Yeah, great. Well, thanks, uh, Eddie. It's really my pleasure to to be here uh, today to talk with you. Uh, and as you said, you know, well, much of my training happened uh, on the West Coast, first uh, in Seattle uh, through high school and then uh, at Stanford, uh, but then returned back to the Pacific Northwest and trained at the University of Washington and at the Fred Hutch. Uh, before starting my career uh, at Emory, uh, where I was a faculty member for 17 years, and then just recently moved to MD Anderson to become the chair of their department of lymphoma and myeloma, and now the uh, interim division head uh, for cancer medicine at MD Anderson. Uh, and throughout my career, I've really been focused on the care of patients uh, with cancer, uh, specifically on patients with blood cancers, and trying to understand what the challenges are for particular uh, patient populations that have uh, worse survival and being able to come up with uh, new treatment strategies for those particular patients. And as you said, uh, I've been very fortunate in that the Lymphoma Research Foundation uh, is honoring me this year as their distinguished leader in lymphoma research uh, at their annual gala. Uh, and that uh, will be virtual, but it usually is in New York. Yeah, I see that. And that's going to be like on September 30th. So that's like two weeks from the day. And it's on 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. That's Eastern time. So that'd be three to four hour time. So uh, what what inspired you to go into uh, into medicine? Yeah, really, the medicine creates opportunities to be able to help people uh, when uh, they really need you most. And that's one of the things that particularly touched me about the field of oncology is that's a time when both patients and their family members really need you most, and you can uh, help them get through this new diagnosis of cancer in a number of different ways. And that uh, includes creating new treatment strategies that help to people to overcome their disease and eventually cure their disease in a number of the lymphomas that I treat, uh, but also help them through the challenges uh, that they face with living with cancer. And uh, that's a challenge for many, many Americans uh, and something that I think is a, an opportunity that as an oncologist that you have that is a really very unique opportunity. And that's one of the things that drove me uh, into wanting to pursue that. And you spent uh, 17 years at Emory University uh, on the faculty there. What inspired you to be, become, be, become a professor? Yeah, really academic medicine is uh, even more than uh, being a practicing physician, creates uh, wonderful opportunities to do uh, many very interesting and diverse uh, things. And so uh, for me, it, it's always an interesting and exciting job. I uh, used to tell people that I spend about 70% of my time taking care of patients and about 70% of my time doing research, which is probably true if we had uh, more than uh, more than 40 hours in a week to work, which is uh, pretty common uh, for an academic uh, physician. Uh, 
but it really does create a, a unique opportunity to be able to do research, to make new breakthroughs and new discoveries that uh, help patients, but also to have that uh, one-on-one uh, patient contact where you're helping people uh, at an individual level and helping the families. And then the other thing that uh, you're able to do as a professor is to be able to teach and develop the, the next generations, And that's uh, something that has been very near and dear to my heart and have mentored a number of investigators uh, throughout my career who are now faculty members in their own right uh, and helping other patients and, and doing research. How are, uh, I want to say in terms of students, how are African descendants of the United States enslaved, the Blacks have been here 400 years, what kind of representation do we have uh, in the medical schools as, uh, as faculty and also in the profession itself? How are we faring right now? You know, that, that's been a real uh, challenge consistently over the decades. And in fact, you know, if you look across medicine as a whole over the last several decades, uh, we probably aren't uh, much farther along uh, than we were uh, in the, you know, the late 1950s and early 60s in terms of representation on medical school faculty uh, and even out in, uh, in clinical practice where things have gotten better. Uh, but th- that's been a consistent challenge in an area where I've uh, where I've also been engaged. I've been doing that through professional societies. Uh, so the two major professional societies that I've been involved with is the American Society of Clinical Oncology, uh, where I was their chair of the Health Disparities Research Committee, uh, and through that program helped to develop the ASCO, or American Society of Clinical Oncology, Workforce Diversity Plan, uh, and their strategic plan uh, for how to increase uh, equity and diversity across the oncology workforce. And so we've created a strategic plan uh, for how to do that. The other group that I've been very involved with is the American Society of Hematology, where I uh, sat on their Committee on Promoting Diversity, as it's called now, uh, from 2008 uh, to the present, and have been the chair for the last of that committee for the last several years through uh, 2023. And there we've created a minority recruitment initiative uh, pipeline where we have a continuous unbroken pipeline through the first year of medical school all the way through uh, the fourth year on faculty so that we can take underrepresented minority trainees and help them to develop their career all the way through that process. And and that's a place where we've been incredibly successful. Actually, really proud uh, to say uh, that I have one of my first trainees who I started working with as a medical student uh, when she was uh, in, uh, in Texas, uh, who's now a faculty member who's uh, starting at Stanford as a junior faculty member. And across my career, have about uh, 14 faculty members uh, who are now underrepresented minority faculty members who have trained with me over the years, uh, who are now on faculty at medical schools across the country. So that's uh, really been a, a, a key part of the my area of emphasis, and I think uh, something that helps patients broadly across uh, the United States when we're able to have physicians that look like the patients that are practicing out there. I want to let our listeners know you're listening to Dr. Christopher Flowers, who is going to be the recipient of the Distinguished Leadership Award from the Lymphoma Research Foundation on uh, September 30th. It's uh, uh, going to be a virtual event uh, from 6 to 7 p.m. That's New York time. That's 3 to 4 p.m. Seattle time. And this is very significant because Dr. Christopher Flowers is a native of Seattle, Washington, and we always want to showcase uh, our natives who are doing outstanding things and and making significant contributions such as Dr. Flowers in his area of expertise. Uh, 
going back to uh, Seattle, now you grew up here and you went to school here. So share with our listeners a little bit about your background and growing up in Seattle. Seattle uh, really, uh, I can still consider it my home. I mean, Seattle uh, was the place where I grew up, as you said, uh, all the way through high school and then returned to Seattle for my training at the University of Washington, Fred Hutch, where I uh, did a master's in pharmacy degree at the School of Pharmacy at University of Washington, trained in the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program at the University of Washington, uh, and uh, and then uh, trained at the Fred Hutch in medical oncology. And so it's been very critical to my success uh, throughout my career. Now, even back to my early childhood, many of the things uh, I was able to do growing up, uh, running track for uh, South Central uh, Athletic Association, where, uh, you know, I learned that competitive experience, the competitive uh, spirit that uh, really helped to drive me through the rest of my career. And so Seattle has really been critical to my success throughout my career. And you also have a very successful brother by the name of Dr. Ross Flowers, who uh, Ross is a psychologist. Is that is that his uh, area of expertise? Correct. So he's a Ph.D. trained sports psychologist uh, who's worked with uh, many professional teams uh, throughout his career. Probably uh, one of the, the hallmarks that, uh, that many of our listeners should be familiar with. He was uh, working with the Los Angeles Lakers during the, the time when they were in the bubble, uh, when they won the championship. Uh, but has worked with a, a number of athletes uh, throughout his professional career uh, at all at all levels. And so I think, you know, it's, psychology is something that is a, a field that is very important to, to many of us as we you know face the pandemic and face some of the challenges that have gone on recently. Uh, but also something that uh, with his area of focus on the psychology of peak performance is very clearly translatable to the work that happens uh, in the athletic uh, performance, but also the work that happens in the workplace as well in terms of because all of us uh, need to have that mental edge uh, to be able to achieve peak performance. We can't go keep going without mentioning uh, uh, your parents, Bob and Mickey Flowers, and the influence they had on you coming up because both of them were leaders. Uh, your mother was a, uh, on high profile on Cairo TV as a health reporter. And then Bob Flowers is a civic leader as well as a business leader in the community and also was intricately involved with the CAYA track team. So I know that that had some significant influence on both you and your brother Ross. You want to share a few comments about them? Oh, absolutely. I mean, my uh, parents uh, and grandparents really uh, on both sides set a tremendous stage for the kinds of performance and the kinds of standards that uh, that uh, Ross and I both uh, realized that we needed to live up to in terms of what our performance would be over the course of our careers. I think seeing their uh, actions in the community, uh, both in uh, helping those uh, across our, our community in Seattle uh, and uh, to making a, a broader impact on the society of Seattle as a whole uh, and giving back. Uh, and that really was inspirational uh, throughout my early development and obviously had a great impact on the ways that uh, I see the, the, the contributions that each of us need to make to society. And uh, it's really my parents that laid that foundation for all the things that I was able to do moving forward. And now you are a father, and child. let's talk a little bit about your family. I understand you're in California now getting some of your your children in, in college. Uh, tell us about that. I, I am. Uh, so I, I actually am uh, back on the West Coast uh, for a brief uh, stint uh, right now this week. 
uh, dropping my two daughters off at Stanford. Uh, so both of them uh, followed uh, my uh, footsteps and my wife's footsteps were uh, uh, as undergraduates at Stanford. In fact, my uh, my youngest daughter, who we uh, dropped off as a freshman uh, just this week, is living in the very same freshman dorm uh, that I lived in uh, as a freshman when I first came to Stanford. And uh, the person that I met there, uh, who was my academic advisor, was really the person who inspired me and helped to develop my career uh, as a physician. And so uh, I'm hoping that she uh, is able to identify the people in the uh, in her life uh, that make those close contacts at Stanford uh, that uh, that that help to propel her career moving forward. You know, uh, many of those connections have been very strong connections. In fact, while I was out here uh, dropping her off, I visited Mike, uh, one of my uh, close friends who was lived in my freshman dorm just down the hall from me, uh, and we're still good friends uh, to this day. And what advice would you give? Uh, uh, people that want to pursue the, me the medical profession as a, a doctor or a psychologist, uh, what kind of uh, inspiration or what kind of direction would you give them? Yeah, I, I think one of the things that is critical to know in any role where you want to achieve success is that the road is not going to be easy. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the quote that I think of uh, when I think about that path uh, was the quote that John F. Kennedy laid out when they planned the mission uh, to go to the moon. And it was that we choose to go to the moon not because it's easy, but because it is hard. And I think as you you chart a path for yourself, choosing the hard path uh, oftentimes becomes the most rewarding path for a career. Uh, recognizing that those challenges that you face, you won't face alone. You know, as I uh, made that path, through undergraduate, as I said, I have uh, many friends and colleagues that I'm still friends with today who fought along that path. I also uh, was at Stanford Medical School and visited many of our friends and colleagues uh, from the, uh, that time uh, who are uh, quite successful, and two, uh, including two uh, African American neurosurgeons who were in my uh, uh, in my medical school class that I saw this week uh, while I was here. Uh, and uh, recognizing that y you will find people along the way that will help to propel you along the way uh, and, and, and get you to that ultimate destination. Dr. Christopher Flowers, uh, Seattle native, and is going to be the recipient of the Distinguished Leadership Award for the Lymphoma, Lymphoma Research Foundation on September 30th. It's a live stream event. As soon as I get the, the, the information, I'm going to make sure I share it on Facebook like I did with uh, your information about this uh, award you're receiving. So Dr. Christopher Flowers, thank you very much. Keep up the good work and we're very proud of you. Oh, thank you, Eddie, and you're very welcome. Uh, and glad, glad uh, anytime to uh, share some time with my friends in Seattle. Okay, sir, thank you very much. Continue to su good success, okay. Okay, uh, we're gonna take a break and come back with our next guest after this. Hi, my name is Mian Rice, the Diversity of Contracting Director for the Port of Seattle. As a public agency, the Port of Seattle serves the community and our investments should benefit everyone who lives and works here. The Port is committed to equity, diversity, and inclusion, and to leveling the playing field. That means continuing to open doors to contracting opportunities to all, especially women and minority-owned and disadvantaged businesses. How can you participate? List your business in Vendor Connect, a database of contractors. 
Attend PortGen workshops to learn how to do business with the port. Learn more about contracting opportunities at portseattle.org. For more information on operating a concessions at Seattle Tacoma International Airport, visit lease.seataxshops.com. Why sit in bumper-to-bumper traffic when you can hop on Link Light Rail and fly by the gridlock? It's a smoother, easier, stress-free way to get where you want to go. Whether you're heading north to Capitol Hill and the University of Washington or south to Columbia City, Tukwila, and the airport, Link Light Rail will get you there quickly and safely. And if you have an ORCA card, even better. Just tap on the yellow card reader when you get on and listen for the beep to let you know your card has been accepted. Then tap your card reader again once you've reached your destination and listen for the double beep to let you know you've tapped off correctly. To find the closest Link Light Rail station or to learn how to get an ORCA card, just go to soundtransit.org and type Link Light Rail into the search bar. Sound Transit's Link Light Rail. Just another way that Sound Transit is powering progress. Find our app in the Apple App Store or Google Play Store and take us with you wherever you go. Alternative Talk, AM 1150. All right, Eddie Rye, back at Urban Forum Northwest with my next guest, who is Linda Thompson-Black, who is the Pacific Northwest Development Director for the United Negro College Fund. And they have a big event coming up on Saturday, the 18th. It's a virtual event because it's going to be raining. But anyway, Linda, welcome to Urban Forum Northwest. And give our listeners an update on where UNCF is right now in the Pacific Northwest. Well, thank you so much, Eddie, for having me. We are really looking forward to our virtual walk um, this Saturday. Uh, It starts at 1030. And we are super excited about the walk because um, our young people are the students that you uh, see who were in the food line who were hardest hit by the pandemic, uh, who lost their housing when they uh, weren't able to go back to school, and who are piecing together the ability to pay for college and um, to have what they need. And so we are uh, really uh, redoubling our efforts to uh, give everybody a chance to be involved with us as we support our students and the legacy of our uh, HBCUs with the walk on um, Saturday, uh, September uh, 18th. Linda, share with our listeners uh, the area that you guys cover and give us an idea of where the students are coming from and where they're going to school. Okay, great. So my area, our our Pacific Northwest area includes uh, Washington, Oregon, and Alaska. And that is, and we have students that um, go to HBCUs from the Pacific Northwest. And then we have students who are trained at HBCUs, and and they come out and they work for Amazon and Microsoft and Google uh, and and many other companies. So uh, we have been able to serve in the Pacific Northwest in Washington and Oregon. We provided over uh, $3 million, UNCF did, uh, to students in the Pacific Northwest, and that went to uh, approximately 180 students. And uh, nationally, we have uh, 
um, about 66,000 students enrolled in HBCUs annually, and we graduate around 8,000 students uh, each year. And um, those would be, it would be so sad if we were not able to educate that many students each year and to provide them an opportunity. It gives new meaning to the uh, mind is a terrible thing to waste. So we are so proud of the um, uh, number of young people that are impacted by HBCUs and, and the work we do in the Pacific Northwest to provide this opportunity for our young people, but also to ask everyone in our country to support uh, historically black colleges and universities. And, and uh, would you give our listeners some kind of idea of uh, the kind of schools that comprise the historic black college and universities? Uh, it, it's students like uh, Spellman and Morehouse, uh, Clark Atlanta, uh, the home of the uh, uh, great debaters. Um, and, you know, we, we there are 37 historically black colleges and universities and at Florida and A&M, um, Tuskegee. Uh, my dad was a, uh, a class below the Tuskegee Airmen, and he was trained at Tuskegee. He was a pilot, and he was uh, stationed in Portland and then moved to Seattle. So the opportunity that was created by um, his uh, training allowed our family to move from uh, low-income uh, poverty a professional uh, who was a pilot and then became a school administrator. So these, these, these connections, they're not far from us, and they're at the foundation of so many uh, great opportunities that we've had. Uh, in terms of uh, with this COVID-19, and I know I don't know exactly what's that's going to the recruiting, the kind of face-to-face -face stuff. Uh, did you guys face many obstacles by that pandemic? Well, we, we definitely faced obstacles last year. Locally, we pivoted our portfolio project, our UNCF portfolio project, which is a college prep program to virtual. And we... Um, and this year, we were hoping to hold our uh, college fair at Garfield like we normally do, but it looks like, you know, COVID cases are rising, so we may have to have that on a virtual platform. So, and then our kids have returned to school. So far, so good. But we know that, um, you know, they're taking every uh, precaution and to keep young people safe, even though we have the Delta variant and even though uh, some of the unvaccinated uh, uh, continue to create a situation where there's, you know, increases uh, in the number of uh, people who are going to hospitals. So we, have, we were very impacted last year. Our students were very impacted last year. And now we're reopening up and people are trying to get their footing. But it's a transition period and it's still um, a challenge. We... We still have kids who are experiencing um, food food challenges. We had kids in uh, Louisiana who were impacted by the flood. We had to we have an emergency student aid fund. We had to help kids 
uh, fly out of um, Louisiana on an emergency basis. So it, it's been really, it, it, it's been a challenge from natural disasters to the pandemic. <clears throat> now, do they still uh, have, uh, I, I don't know, one time they were sponsoring college tours to black colleges and universities. And I know at another time uh, they were having representatives of the black college or HBCUs actually come to the Seattle Tacoma area. Uh, I, I guess with the pandemic, that's off base now. Are they still? Is that something still in the plans? Well, you know what we we are. It, it, we, it, I think you've been hearing from everybody that it makes planning very difficult. We were planning an in-person college and career fair at Garfield, our annual one, but we're waiting for the final determination from the school district. Once we have that, we will either be having uh, it in person at Garfield, or we will be having it virtually um, online. And so we're going to still have our college and career fair. We want to invite as many young people to join us and their family members as we can. And we'll get more information out to you, um, Eddie, once we uh, find that out. We were also planning to go to Atlanta uh, for a college tour and go to Spelman and Morehouse and Clark Atlanta. But we just a, a smaller one for this year. But we just have to see whether um, schools will be accepting outside visitors uh, in, in that way. At this juncture, what is the largest HBCU that we have in the country? Um, Howard. Howard University. That's what the vice president is a graduate of Howard. Yeah, and we're well, so right. proud of her. And, uh, and we're so proud of the many graduates that we um, celebrate, you know, Samuel Jackson and Martin Luther King um, and so many more. I'm not doing them justice, but we are so many of the people that you uh, that we know and that we see in the news are HBCU uh, graduates. As a matter of fact, uh at one point in time, uh, my daughter Angela, one of the first jobs she had in D.C. was with the National Association for Equal Opportunity in Higher Education, NAPIO, with uh, Dr. Leslie Baskerville. So, so she, she had also made uh, quite a few trips, and she was down. As a matter of fact, I think she got a job offer when she went to Tugaloo, and Congressman Benny Thompson was there, who was chairing the Homeland Secu Security Committee at the time, and uh, offered her a position, and there was no looking back after that. So uh, yeah, I was just trying to figure out now. So, our foundation is there, and, and my wonderful Angela has been a part of, you know, supporting uh, HBCUs, as you said, uh, and we so appreciate her. You know, we uh, Jay Johnson, the um, former Homeland Security, as you said, uh, John Lewis, um, Lionel Richie. And Marion Wright Edelman, those are just, you know, mm. a very few. But so much of um, our talent and uh, our writers and poets and um, attend HBCUs. And so we are very, very, very proud of the legacy of graduates that um, come out of our historically black colleges and universities. Now, how many total do we have? 
uh, I mean, one time, one time we had black colleges were also like uh, agricultural and mining. I mean, that, that was, uh, uh, was, what was, A&M was for what, agriculture and what? That's when there were a lot of black farmers before they. Oh, yeah. They, and, and, and we still have um, those departments at, at HBCUs across the country. And so um, we, we, and we are really having a big initiative at this time to uh, build the capacity of our HBCUs and to make sure that they have, um, you know, the most innovative and cut, cutting-edge curriculum uh, in, in the country. And they uh, provide the educational uh, experience that young people want. One of the uh, things we're doing is we're also um, allowing students to get certificates um, from uh, places like DeVry or um, Google or um, um, Microsoft and have those credits um, applied to their graduation. That's really important because then they have job-ready skills, and we want to support um, students who have those uh, interests and talents. So I think that's a really fun and innovative uh, part of the curriculum that we are advancing. We are also seeing a number of um, police um, training uh, academies and social justice uh, emerge uh, so that students uh, young people from our community are joining the ranks of the police department so that our black lives do matter. So on every level, we're um, um, working to expand the opportunities that our students have. We're doing a lot of work with um, uh, entrepreneurial development. And, and we're also uh, reinvigorating our programs around the arts and uh in entertainment. So our HBCUs are as robust as they ever were, and they're even more cutting edge as we, um, you know, support the work we know our kids want um, from their college experience. Well, one thing we need to take care of, and that's uh, eliminating the student college debt, these, these loans. You know, I, I think about uh, the article recently where the top 1% uh, didn't pay $163 billion in taxes because of the various loopholes that they have. And, uh, you know, I just, I'm just very concerned. But I, what I would like to do is uh, just talk a little bit more about your event, how people can get involved, and how they can make contributions before we have to go. Well, we would love for you to um, join us and to, all you have to do is go to our website at www.uncf.org backslash Seattle. And then you can register to be a part of the um, walk. Um, If you have any questions, you can contact me at 206-851-8178. You can, uh, um, and I will help you register. Um, And you have up to 30 days after the walk to uh, uh, register and contribute. So we well, that's would great. love for you to, uh, you know, join us uh, 
tomorrow. It's going to be on Saturday. It's going to be a lot of fun. We have some special guests. We have our uh, pre-show with the the Western region, and then we have the national. And we are also going to be at 1 o'clock. There are some people who wanted to walk um, in person, so we're going to be down at Seward Park for anybody who'd like to walk in person. I'm going to bring the umbrella. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's supposed to be I, pouring down. I'm sure we're going to have a big crowd for that. The main <laughs> I hear you. Is, yeah. Is, uh, is but, no, I mean, that's a good option, though. That's a good option. So everybody needs to wear a mask, whether they, if they vaccinate, especially if they're not vaccinated, don't show up. <laughs> right. If you're not anyway, vaccinated, don't show up. <laughs> there you go. Well, Linda, I really do appreciate this, but I, I want to just give a shout out uh, to one of our friends, uh, Danella Gadot, whose sister Melvina Jones and her niece, Linda Jones, passed away. And uh, so I know that we're all in the same circle. So I just want to give a shout out of love to them. And uh, their memorial services will be uh, tomorrow at 11 o'clock at Washelli. So they're our, our friends, and we want to make sure we hold them up in prayer and in spirit and, and be showing up where we can. And I definitely plan on being there to hold I'll hold those guys up. So, Linda, thank you Absolutely. very much. There's anything I that I can Donella, do. And this has been a really challenging time, but we are with her, uh, and we will be there shoulder to shoulder to support uh, her through this. And, Eddie, you know you're my brother. I appreciate you so very much. You're a gift to our community. Well, Linda, anytime you have something coming up for the HBCUs, the United Negro College Fund, please let me know. Now, it's my understanding that the late uh, Dr. Arthur Allen Fletcher, when he was director of UNCF, coined the phrase, a man's a terrible thing to waste? Well, uh, it, it, it wasn't him. It was Jordan. Um, oh, Vernon Jordan? Vernon Jordan and, okay. and, uh, and, and, a, and team. But um, it, it, it was, it's iconic and it has lasted for the last 50 years. So pretty amazing. It sure is. Okay. All right. Uh, Linda Thompson Black, keep up the good work and getting our students in college and educated and being productive members of society. So thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. That was Linda Thompson Black, uh, uh, development director with the Pacific Northwest uh, area with Washington, Oregon, Alaska, the United Negro College Fund. Do we have uh, Bob Armstead and attorney Tamara Hawkins on? Karama, I'm here. Karama, I'm sorry, Karama. It, it's all good. I had to, I had to, I had to go back and, and, and do the right spelling of your name yesterday. I'm glad I didn't send the email out first, but I checked <laughs> to make sure I had it right. So it's uh, all good. Washington Equity Now, and uh, we know we, a lot of folks have been meeting, and mm -hmm. Karama put a you on recently, but why don't you go ahead and let the people know who you are and what you do. Thank you so much, Eddie. My name is Karama Hawkins Calloway. I am a practicing attorney here in Washington State, and I am a judge pro tem as well in different various courts throughout Western Washington, the metropolitan area of King County. And um, my most recent venture is chief legal counsel with Washington Equity Now. And the Washington Equity Now Alliance is geared toward um, trying to bring back equity and inclusion to Washington State by urging Governor Inslee to rescind Governor's Directive 9801, which has um, basically had race and gender conscious affirmative action in Washington State uh, banned. 
Um, right now, we are in the process of um, presenting this to several um, community organizations and uh, political organizations. We've been endorsed by a number of uh, Democratic county, county organizations, and we are continuing with that work. Um, we have been meeting with the governor's office and um, we plan on meeting again relatively soon to um, hopefully convince the governor to um, sign off on this order. So we are growing day by day. Uh, we're continuing to do this work and we're working hard to bring equity and justice back to this state. You had mentioned that you have, why don't you share with our listeners some of the organizations, the Democratic uh, legislative districts are supporting the effort. I think oh, that would be impressive. Oh, I, I would be more than happy to do that. So we have been endorsed by many organizations, including um, the county democratic organizations for Chelan County, Columbia County, Douglas County, King County, Kitsap County, Kittitas County, Pierce County, San Juan County, um, Skagit County, Snohomish County, Spokane, Thurston, Whatcom, Wakayakum, Yakima. Um, so it's not just a Western Washington thing. This is across the state thing from east to west, north to south. All corners of this state are, um, are joining us in this very important work because what we're doing is going to free up um, everyone and give opportunity to everyone in the state. Um, the many legislative districts have also signed on to this, um, including the 13th, 14th, 32nd, um, I believe the 23rd, the 35th, 37th, and the 40th. Uh, the 41st district um, have also signed on to this as well as a number of community organizations, including the Central Area Senior Center, the uh, Church Council of Greater Seattle, Faith Athens, Action Network, uh, the state NAACP, uh, National Council of Negro Women, uh, Northwest Mountain Minority Supplier Development Council, the Tacoma Pierce County Black Collective, and many more. And that list is growing um, week by week, day by day. Well, anybody running for statewide office would certainly like to have those endorsements. I'll tell you that. I know that's uh, right. <laughs> we, uh, you also, uh, the Washington State Civil Rights Coalition, Bob Armstead's on the line with us as well. And uh, Bob, uh, have your comments on the efforts that's being made to restore affirmative action in Washington State. Uh, yes, Eddie, and uh, I, I'm very pleased to hear that uh, reading of the listing of names, uh, especially those that are, are not in the, uh, the Puget Sound counties, uh, King Pierce and Snohomish. Uh, this is a statewide effort, and it affects everyone in the state. Uh, this morning, uh, I was given an opportunity to uh, be on a session with the local government uh, committee of the uh, Washington State House, and they are talking about, as are several other governmental entities, talking about what they can do to increase equity, but they're still working within what they consider to be the constraints of I-200. 
So it's very, very, very important that we're able to, to do something about the misinterpretation of I-200 that we've been living with for over 20 years so that those agencies, departments, contractors, and others that are, are willing to do something about the uh, unjust, unequitable uh, distribution of work and employment in Washington State. And so, uh, Kamara, what, have you guys examined all the disparity studies? That's the other thing. They say the disparity studies don't lie. They tell the truth. So I was just wondering, uh, uh, what is your reading as an attorney from seeing the disparity studies? Well, thank you for bringing that up. And there have been a number of disparity studies that have come up. I think most recently, um, King County just put one out. There was an audit done. And um, there is no doubt that the disparity has hit uh, the bike park community's hardest of all. And the only thing that really explains this is Governor's Directive 9801. If we think back to um, prior to 1998, Washington State had race conscious affirmative action. Um, and as we know from the state Supreme Court's decision and um, parents involved in community schools versus Seattle, school district number one, there is nothing in Initiative 200 that turns, that says that race conscious affirmative action is not allowed under the initiative anymore, which is now uh, state law. So the only thing that has changed Washington from a race and gender conscious state when it comes to affirmative action to a race neutral state is Governor's Directive 9801. And that is from our analysis and our review of all of these cases and all of these studies that have been done not just on the county level with King County, but also on the state level, um, points directly to Governor's Directive 9801 being the impetus and the reason for these catastrophic changes to our communities. So Bob, what, what is being done right now by the Civil Rights Coalition? You reviewed copies of, of the, the disparity studies. What, do they, what does it tell you? Uh, they all say the same thing, Eddie. And since uh, I-200 has been in effect, uh, uh, WASDOT has had several studies, Sound Transit has had several studies, the state of Washington has had a study, uh, the Port of Seattle has had a couple, and it, it goes on and on. And the results of those studies is always the same that there has been disparate treatment of certain communities in Washington state since the passage of I-200. And it's it also amazing to us that not only are the people that are a part of state government and those uh, educational institutions and others that were included in uh, Directive 9801, but those agencies in Washington state that are federal agencies uh, start following the same guidelines. And there is a total and distinct difference between 
the position and requirements for participation from the federal government than there is from Washington State. Uh, one of the things that uh, we are, are waiting to see happen is, as you are aware, uh, President Biden issued his uh, equity uh, directive in January or February. Uh, under existing laws, uh, Title VI and others, uh, if recipients of federal funding are not uh, having or providing access to, to all citizens, if their, their contracting and employment practices are disparate, then the feds have the opportunity and should be a requirement to uh, cease and desist funding. Uh, everyone is excited about the proposal to have this in infrastructure bill passed. Uh, billions of dollars to, uh, to every state. Uh, if the state of Washington is not in compliance with federal requirements, we will have an opportunity to see if President Biden is going to enforce uh, the equity directive that he issued in January and February. Well, that's a, that'll be a good test. Uh, hopefully, uh, we won't see the same thing we've seen the last 40, 45 years. Uh, at what point, uh, Attorney uh, Hawkins, does uh, equity now start looking at uh, alternatives to uh, enforce the law? Well, I can tell you that we have actually um, kind of taken the position that we're looking at everything at this point in time. We are focusing our energy on ensuring that Governor Inslee does the right thing at this point. Um, but in terms of other potential um, actions that could be taken, um, we, we've already looked into that. And um, that is definitely an option on the table. Um, which I think would be very, very sad for uh, Ms. for Governor Inslee's legacy, but also for the state to be in a position where a state that calls itself progressive would force the hand of um, a, a community organization like Washington Equity now to file a lawsuit or take legal action in order to make it follow the rules that it's set for itself would just be, I think, abhorrent um, at anybody looking at this um, from a um, philosophical, legal, um, and moral standpoint. So okay. to answer your question, we've looked into it, and hopefully we don't have to go there. All right. We've been joined by Congressman Gregory Meeks, who is chair of uh uh, the House Foreign Relations Committee. I think he's still chair of the Congressional Black Caucus Political Action Committee. Congressman Meeks, are you on board? I am on board. Yeah, uh, Bob Armstead with the Washington State Civil Rights Coalition is on, and also Attorney Karama Harris Hawkins, who is leading up uh, Washington Equity. Now, you know, Washington State has not had affirmative action in since 1923 years without affirmative action. But I just wanted to chat with you for a minute. Uh, I know that you guys are meeting and we're also concerned about the way this money is going to be distributed with this bill back better. We're going to make sure there's some bill black in that too. And uh, after 45 years of the minority sub and prime relationship, uh, we're doing probably one half of 1% as 
African descendants uh, in Washington State. So I was just curious to know uh, are there going to be any guarantees uh, in that uh, in that enforcement of that of that Build Back uh, Better plan? Well, there's things that are all, of course, that uh, you know is benefiting the African American community. That's why we, uh, uh, for example, uh, when you're talking about uh, infrastructure that's going to be built there, uh, that benefits us. Hospitals, uh, housing, uh, the money that we're looking at going to housing development. Uh, all benefits uh, people uh, of African descent, uh, as well as trying to make sure that uh, our businesses uh, are, are having opportunities to deal in the contract with uh, with the federal government. But it also becomes important, you know, locally. Uh, for example, uh, I can speak of this, my state, New York, where I am, uh, you know, because a lot of the money goes through the local municipalities, the, the, the state uh, government. Uh, the, 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 municipal, the municipal government. Uh, so we made sure that uh, as it comes through, that in our respective states, for example, and I'm a big proponent of, uh, of, of equity uh, in these projects. So anything that goes into, we have the Port Authority that does our ports uh, and infrastructure that, you know, where there's equity opportunities, we want at least 30% of it to be uh, the person of African descent, a black, uh, an, an African American, uh, we've got that in place, and we've, you know, we've been implementing that uh, and urging folks to do that around the country. So we've got to work it, work it from the legislation that we put in place, where there's direct contracting with the federal government, and we want to make sure that's there for people and opportunities for black folk, but also to make sure that there is then a uh, where money is directed directly to state. Uh, that the states have something in place uh, to make sure that uh, uh, there's equity ownership, there's contracting, there's subcontracting, but at every level, you know, there's for attorneys and architects, uh, they're, they're at, at every level, both professional services as well as laboring uh, laborers uh, that African-Americans can benefit from the dollars that are coming from the federal government. And I'm going to switch subject right quick. What are the priorities? I talked to Congressman Cleaver earlier, uh, and he was saying you have a uh, political action committee meeting. I guess going to be starting either tonight or tomorrow. I uh, just wanted to find out what were the priorities. Uh, trying to, I know uh, I, maybe Joe Manchin's on on the on the menu of the, uh, the markets, but anyway, I was just trying to figure out what would the priorities be for the CBC PAC. Well, the CBC PAC is focused on uh, making sure that we stay in the majority. Uh, and, and especially in the House, but also to pick up more seats in the Senate so you don't have a one-seat uh, or, or, uh, uh, Democrat majority where one person like Manchin can make the determination uh, of what goes and what not goes and, and has an over, uh, overweighted uh, 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 process, an overweighted say in, in the process. The best way to defeat that is to have two or three uh, more Democrats in the Senate and then try to maintain our majority. Uh, it is tremendously important. When you talk about our majority, and the reason why I know the bills that uh, are coming out of the House and, and, and that will go into the Senate will, uh, will indeed uh, include uh, people of color is because you have folks like Bobby Scott, who's chair of the Education Committee, uh, that has a major creation process. And he's making sure that we're included therein. you got Maxine Waters, who's chair of the financial services, and they do 
major uh, dealings uh, in the reconciliation bill. And Eddie Bernice Johnson was a significant part of it with uh, science and technology. These are all Afri- African-American mm-hmm. uh, and CBC members. Uh, Benny Thompson, uh, he's chair of Homeland Security and the money that's, that goes in there. So we've got, uh, and that's why we're invested in trying to make sure that we maintain the majority because it is in the best interest of the people that we represent. And the CBC PAC is getting together this weekend, uh, preparing and getting ready to, you know, and we'll be out uh, in, in the state of Washington, but we're going to be around the country, not waiting till elections uh, happen, but well beforehand and talk about things uh, to individuals on a local level. You know, we've got the John uh, Lewis Voting Rights Act. We've got to make sure that we pass and. All these other things that are taking place, uh, uh, HR one, uh, which we need to get done. But we've got a lot of work to get done. We can only do it if we maintain the majority, maintain the majority, and 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 and, and gain the majority, so that we don't have uh, a few folks uh, that 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 can tilt the balance there. In we've got Supreme okay, Court. Well, I, I wish I had time to have my, my my Bob Armstead or Attorney Hawkins asked a question, but we're out of time. But Congressman uh, Meeks, I really appreciate you jumping on the line with us. And uh, we'll have to have a conference call with you and some of those chairs that you mentioned with uh, Attorney Hawkins and Bob Armstead, the Y State Civil Rights Coalition. She's one of the leaders of Washington Equity now trying to restore affirmative action. So I want to thank all y'all very much for your time today. We appreciate you and we'll be in touch soon. Thank Thank you very much. Eddie? Eddie? If, if I could say one thing while Congressman Meeks is on, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, through her community, community, put the hold on a $2 billion transportation project in Houston, Texas, for just the things that we're talking about. So it's beginning to happen, and if other congressionals would work in their communities, we could have it happen all around the country. Okay, thank you, everybody. We appreciate you all. So, uh, Eric, I don't know if we have time for a break, but I'm going to give a shout out to all of my folks. I want to thank uh, uh, the City of Seattle's Personal Construction Services Office, Sound Transit's Diversity Contracting Office, uh, Port of Seattle's Diversity Contracting Office, Sound Transit Civil Rights and Labor Office with Leslie Jones and John T. Robinson. Uh, uh, I also want to thank Concourse Concessions, SeaTac Bar Group, LLC, Stephanie Ogle that does the website. And uh, I guess we have enough to for a couple of little commercial time, Eric. So we're out of here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hi, my name is Mian Rice, the Diversity of Contracting Director for the Port of Seattle. As a public agency, the Port of Seattle serves the community and our investments should benefit everyone who lives and works here. The Port is committed to equity, diversity, and inclusion, and to leveling the playing field. That means continuing to open doors to contracting opportunities to all, especially women and minority-owned and disadvantaged businesses. How can you participate? List your business in Vendor Connect, a database of contractors. Attend PortGen workshops to learn how to do business with the port. Learn more about contracting opportunities at portseattle.org. For more information on operating a concessions at Seattle Tacoma International Airport, visit lease.ctacshops.com.